Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Thank you for tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast, brought to you by the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's June 2021, and you're listening to episode 239, which is a conversation about the HBO Max four-hour director's cut version of the film Zack Snyder's Justice League. Today's guest is Cole Burgett, a seminary student, a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and an author for the website Christ in Pop Culture. Cole has written an online exclusive film review for the Christian Research Journal, and his review is called Know Us Without Him, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Zack Snyder's Justice League. And as one of their benefits, subscribers to our magazine can read this article for free at our website, Equip.org. If you would like to read this film review, please subscribe to the Christian Research Journal at Equip.org. Cole, it's good to have you on. Well, thank you so much. It's always fun to be here. Well, Cole has kind of turned into our resident superhero expert. Both we've talked a lot about Marvel, but today we're going to talk about DC, which is always very... um, I don't know if it's controversial, but people have a lot of opinions about DC for sure in terms of the fans. And this particular film that we're talking about, as I mentioned, is available right now as like the director's cut that's four hours on HBO Max. And so it was actually released in a much shorter form in theaters back in 2017, four years ago. So why don't you just tell us a little bit more about the history of this film and the director, Zack Snyder, and, you know, his making of this film and, you know, how it came to be created. And then why four years later or three years later, you know, go ahead and release this, you know, very long four hour version of that film? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. Like you said, it originally came out back in 2017. It was just called Justice League then. And the story has been fairly well documented. It's pretty easy to come across. I'm pretty sure Wikipedia gives a great little summary of it. But the basic story goes that Zack Snyder was sort of handed the keys to the DC film universe. That's what we want to call it. Back in, I think it was 2013, 2012, somewhere around there, when he released Man of Steel which essentially rebooted Superman. And he did that, which I think is kind of interesting, in conjunction with Christopher Nolan, who had just come off the Dark Knight trilogy, the critically acclaimed Dark Knight trilogy. So with David Goyer, who worked on Nolan's films, and with Nolan as a producer, Superman was sort of rebooted, and it sort of reset the status quo. And then after that, the decision was made to do a movie that was horrendously 
titled and originally sort of horrendously edited and released a film called a Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, which is the worst title I've ever heard. But that film came out and it sort of made clear the plans for Snyder to do his version of the Justice League. The Batman Superman film was lambasted and rightfully so, but it did receive, I guess on DVD release and things like that, a very extended director's cut. And this was your first, I think, indicator that Snyder's approach to the material and the studio's approach to the material were two very different things. Because when I saw the film in theaters with one of my best friends, I'm pretty sure we laughed the whole way through it, unintentionally. We were just kind of flabbergasted by some of the storytelling decisions. Well, then when I watched the director's cut of that film, the film actually made sense. There was a logic to it, and I was kind of baffled at some of the stuff that was cut out. And so it was a much longer film. It added something like 30 minutes to the movie, which turned an already long film into something like a three-hour affair. And that was, I guess, the first indicator, at least that I had, of what Snyder was doing with the material and really kind of was interested by it. But then after a personal tragedy, Snyder had already begun work on Justice League by that point. He stepped away from the project. And I think he's made fairly clear in interviews that it was his choice. The studio never forced him out, but he made the choice to walk away for his family. Uh, Very logical choice. And Joss Whedon, the guy who was behind the Avengers, was brought in by Warner Brothers to sort of complete the project. And the completed version was released in 2017, again, just titled Justice League. It received very mediocre reviews, was sort of lambasted. And it it ended up losing Warner Brothers around $60 million, which, you know, it's kind of hard to believe that in this day and age, a superhero film can actually lose money. But this one did. And in the aftermath, fans, very vocal fans, took to social media, as they do, and sort of demanded a re-release of the film. What makes this demand kind of interesting, and what sort of makes Zack Snyder's Justice League a bit of a modern movie-making miracle is the fact that the cast, individuals like Ben Affleck and Gal Gadot, who were in the film, came along and supported this. They basically said that under two-hour version you got was not at all the film that Snyder intended to make. And they became very supportive of this sort of fan movement to basically have a director's cut released that restored Snyder's original vision. And it became a bit of a a lightning rod. Well, in 2017, Snyder ended up confirming himself that there was substantial footage of the earlier version that most of the original film that he had made was already completed. And in 2020, confirmed after the announcement of HBO Max that that streaming platform would be releasing his version of the film and that he had been given something like $70 million to complete it. And that was in 2020. He worked on it for, I think, a year after that. The film released in 2021 with, as you said, a nearly four-hour runtime. It is exclusive to HBO Max, and it was much better acclaimed than the 2017 cut. It's done well, and as far as I can tell, it's being considered a, a very kind of rousing success. So that's a little bit about the history of the film. Since they released it on HBO Max, I think they should have made it more into a miniseries, you know, because in the film itself, he cuts it up into sections, you know, part one, part two. And I think that would have, even if he dropped it all at once or just week by week, even as a short, you know, 
four-part miniseries, it might have done better, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I actually, you bring that up. That's, that's kind of interesting. I think there was talk once upon a time of doing exactly that. But I'm pretty sure, from what I remember reading, I think Snyder actually pushed for it to be released as a film. And this is something else I do want to mention. You talked about breaking it up as a miniseries on HBO Max. This is a film, and you know, as much as we kind of can talk about streaming services and how it's destructive to the industry and that kind of thing. The reality is something like this could never have happened 20 years ago. You could never have been able to lobby, first of all, because of social media, for a new version of a movie you've just seen so quickly and readily and then immediately gain the support of the cast of the film. You could also never turn around and have a four-hour film released with the grand exception of certain epics because studios wouldn't play it. It cost them money. You know, the shorter a runtime, the more showings you can get in a day in a theater. That's good for business. One four hour movie that's taking up a block of theaters, a block of screenings for only, you know, 20 bucks a ticket. You could triple that if the film was half the runtime. So with HBO Max and social media, this it's like a modern miracle that it even happened and can be shown in its entirety as opposed to being broken up. You just, you wouldn't have been able to get that any other way. Well, before I, you know, kind of have you talk to us about why Christians would want to watch this film and think about how to, you know, use it as a springboard to talk to people about the gospel, because obviously superheroes are so big right now in our culture of course, the big question people are probably wondering with, you know, the idea of these superheroes is, you know, you've got the DC versus Marvel. And Disney has definitely had a specific approach to, say, the Marvel Avengers, both in the film and also in these miniseries, which is why I mentioned that I did miniseries. And, you know, you have reviewed some of those for us. So can you talk a little bit more about why the director... Zack Snyder had the approach that he did with Justice League, and how is it different, say, than the Disney approach with the Marvel Avengers? Sure. Well, I could, but I think Snyder kind of says it best himself, and I think I quote this in the article that I did for you. He gives an interview in the New York Times, I think. Yeah, it was earlier this year. He gives an interview with the New York Times, and in this interview, he says, and this is kind of my paraphrase of what he says, he essentially says the folks at Disney have mastered a very popular and zeitgeisty action comedy formula with a very established tone. And he says he never wanted to try and duplicate that. Instead, with the uh, the DC property coming through Warner Brothers, he saw the potential to do mythology on an epic level with some of pop culture's biggest icons. His approach to Justice League is probably best described as mythological. And I think maybe that's part of the dissonance, the thing that sort of took people a minute to realize that, oh wait, this is very different from what Disney is doing with Marvel. You're listening to episode 239 of the Postmodern Realities Podcast, brought to you by the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Cole Burgett, who has written an online exclusive film review for the journal. It's called No Us Without Him, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Zack Snyder's Justice League. 
And as one of their benefits, subscribers can read this article for free on our website, equip.org. If you'd like to read this film review and are not currently a subscriber, you can also subscribe at equip.org for $33.50 and read this film review. Now, normally I talk to you about ways you can partner with us by giving us a tip or even better yet, rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And we'd still like it if you would do that. But it is June and June marks the coming to the fiscal year end of our organization, the Christian Research Institute. And we would like you to partner with us by considering a donation because it's through your donations that we are having our Christian Research Journal budget, which allows us to have authors like Cole Burgett come and be on this podcast and write reviews for us that he does and many of our other authors, as well as help us meet our budget for the Christian Research Journal. So we'd like you to help us continue bringing you all of this content for apologetics and cultural apologetics and theology and discernment and ethics and all the things that you have enjoyed reading about from very thoughtful authors in our journal. So please do consider partnering with us with a donation. You can donate to us, to the Christian Research Institute at equip.org. And by doing so, you help fund our budget for the Christian Research Journal. And thank you for your support. Well, You know, when you talk about his approach to the DC material, and then we think about, you know, Marvel, it's so huge. I mean, they literally, you know, in that universe have hundreds, if not thousands of characters that, I mean, it's going to be endless, basically. But the bigger, more iconic characters in the DC universe, like Superman and Batman, you mentioned that one film that had a very poor reception has received a very divided response from fans, and especially whether it's the casting or how the characters have been portrayed, and also just over the years, you know, there's just been different ways in which it has been portrayed, whether it's Michael Keaton in Batman or, you know, the Christopher Nolan Batmans, which are more gritty, or, you know, Ben Affleck, which was also met with great divided reception. What do you make of that and just the differences, especially when you know Marvel's going to be unending. They've got like more than a thousand characters they haven't even put on film or TV. Yeah, I think it has something to do with the fact that we have come into an era in which popular level fare has been enmeshed with serious critical reflection. And here's what I mean by that: we are actually sitting here trying to talk half seriously about comic book movies. It's not even on the same level of prowess as like Die Hard, which is a movie that brilliantly utilizes like suspense and action to tell a story about this podunk everyman cop just trying to save his marriage. And my intention in saying that is not to be snobbish here, but I think we all just need to have the strength of ego to admit that most of the films we really enjoy aren't high art. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that. But the absurdity is when we start evaluating things that aren't meant to be high art with a kind of, you know, high art mentality. Hence something like the Marvel films or even to a large degree Star Wars. They don't set out to be next gone with the wind. They attain a kind of popular level in the zeitgeist while sort of understanding that they're never going to be critically lauded. And in a way, that's what kind of captures people. They're very, they're content in their own skin, so to speak. What I think is very interesting about Snyder is that he comes along 
and he actually does take this material very seriously and means it to be taken very seriously. And now I'm not saying he's wrong for that. What I am saying is that by his own admission, no less, he looks at the popular level tone of something like the Marvel films or even the gravitas of Nolan's noir type Batman series. And he very intentionally steers away from that. Snyder, yeah, you know, I don't know the guy personally. This is just the impression I get having read some about him and listened to him talk in a plethora of interviews. He kind of strikes me as the type of guy who would be right at home talking about the Justice League and the Iliad in the same breath. He sees those mythic stories as essentially serving the same function with regard to archetypes and the lessons they teach us. So the question is, interestingly, why do people sort of respond to the mythic archetypes of something like Star Wars, but seem to do less so with this approach to Justice League? And I think the answer is because we have a very set and established framework for what a superhero film is and what they're supposed to be. That has been established very firmly over the past 15 years or so, wherein this particular genre of film has risen to the forefront of pop culture. And Snyder's approach is very deconstructionist within a mythological framework. It even deconstructs the very model of how we approach building a quote-unquote superhero universe. You know, Marvel's going to take their time doing it. Snyder's not going to do that. He's going to jump right in and throw you into this world of gods and monsters. It's deconstructionist of the very way in which these films are made. And that interests me. I'm not saying it's the right approach. I don't know that such a thing exists when you're adapting material like this. But what I am suggesting is that Snyder's films, love them or hate them, they come across as a very bespoke sort of movie. It's very tailored, if you will. You can see there's no question when you're watching one of those films who the director is. There's no question. I can tell you certain Marvel directors. I can't tell you all of them watching a specific Marvel film. I don't know that I could pick out a particular director's style with the exception of maybe James Gunn who directed the Guardians of the Galaxy series. Snyder, you'll tell one of his movies instantly. And it's we were talking just before this, and that's what you had said. Lots of slow motion. It's not going to work for everybody, but that's his personal touch. You see it in pretty much all of his films. And so his films are very tailored. The Marvel machine is a machine. Uh, If there's one common criticism I've heard and have offered myself about Disney's Marvel series, it's that each and every film more or less feels like the rest in terms of tone. Now, this makes for a very brilliant method of telling a cohesive story over a long period of time. It's very lighthearted. It's fun. You're guaranteed a good time at the movies with a half-serious grin on your face. But Snyder is going to do something else entirely. If you want a lighthearted Superman, go back to the 1970s. If you want a serious meditation on the struggle of every great hero who has ever held the world on his shoulders, well, that's what Snyder is at least interested in exploring. Whether or not he pulls it off is up for people to debate, but that's, I think, what he's doing. And this is what I try to get some of my friends who aren't really into movies to kind of see. And it's the trying to pit you know, DC and Marvel and their respective film universes against one another is to make a category error. Forget playing in the same ballpark. They're not even in the same hemisphere. That doesn't make one quote unquote better than the other. 
some have better critical reception than others. You know, that can be looked at if you're talking in terms of craftsmanship. But in terms of what they're doing and their approach to the material, I mean, they're on the same planet of superhero movies, but they are poles apart in what they're doing with their characters and in how they view their characters. And Snyder's approach is very much the opposite of what is and has been popular now for 15 to 20 years. And I think that's really kind of at the heart of the divided reception. The question, I think, is time. How will Snyder's trilogy, Man of Steel, Batman, Superman, and then Justice League, how will it fare in the future when critics who are removed from the current cultural context look back and examine the story he's told. I think these are movies that in hindsight will be much more highly regarded than they are now. Well, it sounds like from what you were mentioning a little bit earlier, just this idea of the DC universe of gods and monsters, that Zack Snyder kind of views it more in a mythological setting, maybe more with that kind of lens than what you mentioned also, which is the Marvel kind of hey, Iron Man cracks jokes, or there's just a knowing kind of funny part to any of the series that have been playing right now on Disney+. Plus. It's just very different, like you said, in terms of tone. So why is that important that there's this more mythological framework? And, you know, is there some kind of framework? Is that the framework in which Christians can begin to think about these particular stories? Because as I've said on this podcast before, and is on our website, equipped.org, if someone wants to read an older article we did, is, you know, television and movies are the new literature. That's kind of where everyone is that's not religious. It's the kind of shared mythology that people are thinking about. So it's an opportunity for Christians to be able to enter into that with non-Christians. Yep, we have talked about this so much before, and it's a large part of why I wanted to do this Justice League material. We've talked, I I know I I kind of pushed this for several months. We went back and forth because I knew what Snyder was doing with the material, and I knew this would come out in in whatever he did with Justice League. So it was the great conviction of C.S. Lewis that Christianity represented what he called the true myth. In other words, the archetypes so commonly found in mythic stories from the Roman myths to the Norse myths to the Mayan myths to the Lord of the Rings to Star Wars, like you say, the the more sort of modern literature, on and on. Those very well-defined and well-known archetypes of the sacrificial hero, the dying and rising god, all of those things are given actual expression in human history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Lewis meant by the, the true myth. And so for Lewis, becoming familiar with great mythic literature. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill was a way of priming one to receive the gospel. It's a very interesting, kind of different idea that doesn't really compute with a lot of our modern sensibilities. But Lewis was a Platonist. In other words, he took the ideas of Plato, the philosopher, very seriously. And Platonic notions suggest something like this. 
If you can conceive an idea or if something exists, it's because there is a perfect archetypal expression of that thing somewhere. In other words, if you read a story about a god, it's because there actually is a god out there. Because you can conceive of it and write a story about it would suggest that the idea is coming from somewhere. If you can grasp it, it's there. And Lewis had this really fascinating idea, and he's not the first to have it, just the first to make it accessible to moderns in the context of Christianity, that the very fabric of the stories we tell, the very archetypes upon which we build our stories, the poetry and the metaphor, is indicative of a story that has been told in human history. There is a reason that all stories more or less conform to a similar pattern, a story that has played out in time and history. Uh, It's a story in which God and man come together and deals with cosmic forces of good and evil. That story, Lewis would say, which is you know, ultimately the basis of any story, really, the struggle between good and evil, that conflict, is indicative of an actual conflict that is playing out and has played out that we read about in the Bible. And so these stories become a bit like how Paul describes living on this side of eternity. We see now through a dim mirror or through dirty glass. For Lewis, when you read Norse mythology, for example, and you read about Balder, That story basically exists as a dim shadow of the story we read about in Scripture, the story that is actually played out here on Earth. And it's absolutely fascinating for like comparative mythologies, right? Any college student, any first-year college student who takes a philosophy course or a history course is going to learn about the similarities between world mythologies. And then you're going to be told that you construct alongside evolutionary theory something called a proto-Indo-European mythology, this hypothetical mythology that exists among this hypothetical people group from which all world mythologies spiral out of a common ancestry of myths, if you will. And then they come out of that first-year class thinking they know everything there is to know about mythology. Well, Lewis looks at that and goes, well, what if instead of a hypothetical myth, which is just guesswork, we already have the point of origin? In fact, the Bible itself is going to give you that point of origin in the Old Testament and then turn around all throughout the New Testament and basically point to the veracity of that origin point. And so for Lewis, that was as good a case as any for what you might call the supremacy of the Christian scriptures over all other mythologies. So I think that if nothing else, that gives Christians a framework for why we should consider, if not you know, classic literature, we don't want to go back that far, for why we should at least consider thinking through the stories that are playing out in the modern literature scene, which would be films, television, things like that. So just in terms of like this mythic, you know, storytelling that you've just kind of explained to us, I think of, you know, everybody, well, here in college, how the Epic of Gilgamesh is the same thing, you know, as this story in the Bible. And so therefore it's not, it's not any different. It's just how that particular people wanted to explain the world. Right. So how specifically though, for the Christian apologists, can they kind of interact with mythic storytelling in relation to the Bible where it's, hey, this is something that should be considered. It's not just like everything else in history that are similar stories or they have similar characteristics. Right. So I think it's a logical progression. If it walks like a myth, talks like a myth, it's a myth. And there are clear mythological concepts all throughout the Bible. 
Twins, for example, Esau and Jacob, the dying and rising God, that one is obvious. The sacrificial savior, another obvious one. The apocalyptic ending, the struggle on a cosmic scale of good and evil. All of those at a thematic level, if you will, are at play in the plot of the Bible. And part of the great enjoyment of reading the Bible is reading it as a story, which I think we often forget. We forget this all the time. The Bible is predominantly a narrative, a historical narrative written by historical people to other historical peoples. And what we call application is really looking at what was said back then and trying to tease out what it means for us today. And there's no one-to-one correlation for this, right? Every time Paul says we in the Bible, he doesn't mean all Christians across all time everywhere. He could be talking about the apostles, that select group of teachers of which he was a key part. He could also be talking about the Jews, the national people to whom he belonged. And it's not to say that that word we has a range of meaning and means all of these things, even though in seminary you're going to hear that, and I did hear that, that it's kind of D all of the above and you just pick which one you want. That's not how language works. That's not how context works. And your context is going to determine his usage of the word. My point is that we have to be very careful when reading and interpreting. And this gets into hermeneutics, which for my money is pretty much everything. And this is where, you know, a Christian apologist should really dig in and eat their heart out. Because, look, everybody pretty much agrees what the words on the page are. I figured that out, I think, somewhere around year two of seminary. Nobody's debating what it says. I think we're told sometimes that people are debating what it says. Nobody's debating what it says. But Katie, bar the door when it comes to discussing what the scriptures mean. This is where the debate ultimately goes. And this is where all common sense also goes out the window, and people forget how to read at a first grade level. And I think recognizing that the Bible employs such basic, commonplace storytelling techniques, protagonist, antagonist, conflict, tension, climax, resolution, that should tell us in no uncertain terms that what we are reading is a story. And the defined archetypes that the Bible employs, we're afraid to use that word archetype in biblical studies because it sounds too much like literature, and we can't look at the Bible as literature. I'm being facetious in case you couldn't figure that one out. But we don't use the word archetype, but we'll talk about typology. We'll talk about, well, types of Christ, types of messianic figures in the Old Testament. Okay, that's an archetype. You're talking about an archetypal figure that like David embodies, that Noah embodies, that the New Testament is going to turn around and suggest that they embody on this road that is leading to Christ, who is like the personification of that archetype and the basis of what we study when we talk about typology. And people recoil right from that, because when you start suggesting, when they hear the word myth, that you're talking mythologically, they recoil from that, because when they hear the word myth, they think, oh, you mean fake stuff, so the Bible's all made up. Well, No, actually, I mean the opposite, the exact opposite, that mythic stories serve a very important purpose, and that purpose is, in a sense, more important than anything else. You don't, you know, show your kid a movie called Sharknado and say, here is basic morality. No, you show your kid Star Wars and say, here is basic morality. Or, you know, we used to teach people the classics, mythological stories that say, here is basic morality. And there are certain truths contained there that look suspiciously like truths contained within the Bible. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You don't need the Bible to tell you, for example, that money is the root of all evil. You can figure that one out really quickly on your own. Most of my non-Christian friends have that one figured out. 
what you do need the Bible to do is make sense of it. Why? Why are we so easily corrupted? Why is it evil? What even is evil? Why don't I like it? Why shouldn't I like it? What is good? How do I get there? Where do I turn to? In other words, mythic stories teach us through metaphor the truest lessons you're ever going to learn in life. If the liar and the murderer would literally just be like Luke Skywalker, they wouldn't lie and they wouldn't murder. Well, that's not a bad lesson to teach someone. Be honest. When you fail, admit your failures. Take responsibility. Well, myth teaches that. So then the question becomes, and this is what you asked, and I think this is what it really comes down to. You know, you, you come through those you know, first-year college courses, and you're coming out going, oh, well, the Bible's just like the Epic of Gilgamesh, and so it all just kind of loops together, and it's one big mythology, and so proto-Indo-European stuff. No, because there are differences. There are things that are, are very unique about each story, and then there's some things I think that makes the Bible sort of the most unique of all. Is the Bible just another myth, this book of fables and fairy tales? Well, I, I think there's some pretty interesting things that set that story apart from so many others. And chief among them, Lewis argues, is the fact that the Bible story plays out on earth with human history. And you can only see this if you actually are a student of myth, if you actually try to sit down and, and read through some different mythologies, as opposed to just the streamlined you know, college course where you glance at them. The fact that the Bible story plays out on earth in very tangible places that you can go and stand at, it's not removed. It mingles, for example, with the Roman Empire quite well. You can go stand in Bethlehem. But more than this is the fact that there is one massive major concept that is so antithetical to common sense that lies at the very heart of the gospel, and that is what we call imputed righteousness. It's not just an image of a dying and rising God. It's what that accomplishes. And this is where Christianity and the Bible story takes a hard left turn in the scope of mythologies, in the scope of stories. And it really is mind-boggling. It's this idea that you can't actually save yourself, that you can't just be good. And even your best attempt at being good is regarded by God as nowhere near good enough. In fact, we must depend on Christ and his righteousness for our own right standing with God. That's very complex. I mean, wildly complex. And Paul teases this out in Romans. Remember in Romans chapter 3, the Jews in the church at Rome are accusing Paul's gospel of leading people into sin which I think is hilarious. If there are no consequences for it, they're saying, then why don't we just all run out and do it? And they're missing the point of Christ's sacrifice altogether, missing the freedom from the law altogether. See, it's antithetical to anything and everything we assume is the way the world should work. And there really is nothing like it. There really is nothing like it, as far as I know, in any other world mythology or religion. The Bible is almost unnaturally complex in that way. I don't think the Bible is a complicated book. I think it's complex. There is a difference. It's not needlessly complicated, but it's complex and it requires you to pay very close attention. And it's very remarkably self-contained and self-referential. Marvel and DC, to make a loose tie-in, Marvel and DC has to reset their continuity every decade because they can't keep it straight. There are dozens of versions of Roman myths, for example. 
there isn't a dozen versions of Genesis. There's Genesis. Any additions in like rabbinic literature, for example, come much, much later, and we know where those come in. There is a remarkable consistency within Scripture stretched across 2,500 years worth of history that even the best modern writers can't manage to do in 70 short years. One of the things I'm often fond of telling my students when I teach is, listen, you don't have to accept you know, what we're talking about. You don't have to accept the Bible. That's fine. You can disagree with me. But at bare minimum, what you're going to have to do is convince me that if nothing else, this is the singular greatest conspiracy theory to ever receive mainstream appeal. Because what you're having to convince me of is that 40 writers across 2,500 years, essentially 1,500 years, 2,000 years, somehow managed to borderline supernaturally like piece together a cohesive narrative across wildly different genres of literature and string it all together into a cohesive whole where like this person doles out a little bit here and this person's going to give this little piece of information here and somehow make it consistent. We can't do that in 70 years worth of comic book writing. You're going to tell me they're doing this? It's like the ancients, you know, the people who we always sort of lambast as not being able to figure out how a wheel works are able to do this. It's like, come on, at some point it just gets a little bit easier, in my estimation, to look at it and go, and eh, there's probably something to it. Well, and also, if you think about it, forget about 70 years. I don't think we could do it in 40 years because <laughs> right. what happened with Star Wars was they threw out the entire thing that had gone before. And they're like, none of that's canon anymore. So they kind of used a scriptural term, canon, when you talk about the canon of scripture. But then there's all these inconsistencies where a particular director says this. And you thought, well, I thought that wasn't canon anymore. Why did they do this? So like you said, you can't keep it necessarily all straight for some of these superhero and sci-fi type of universes, whether it's Star Trek or Star Wars and what have you. But particularly in DC, I thought it was, you know, I'm not a big superhero person, but I did watch this film. And you know, you mentioned archetypes, and it seems to me that there are definite archetypes that are being employed in a knowing way. He is, I think, making that choice very intentionally. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And part of that is just, I think, what Snyder drags out of looking at DC. And DC's characters didn't really start out this way. They didn't start out as sort of embodying these archetypes. But over time, writers who were students of myth come along and they start to see some similarities because, you know, that's just kind of how basic stories work. And they begin to highlight those things. And so in the pantheon of Justice League heroes, and this to me is what makes these characters so wildly different from Marvel. And I think we talked about this in another podcast. Marvel's characters are very earthy. I mean, they may be kind of superhuman, but they're not going to be gods among men. And that makes them relatable. That makes them very relatable. Tony Stark cracking wise while building a suit. Okay, we might not be able to do that, and we get that it's a fantasy, but he's relatable. We get that. Superman? Not quite relatable. <laughs> Alien from another planet. He grows up in Kansas, but then he can fly. It's a little, it's a little different. So Superman, Batman, Flash, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and even in the broader canon, like you know, Green Arrow and Green Lantern, they all sort of embody different archetypes. And like you say, especially in Snyder's films, they are 
he doubles down on these things like it's nobody's business. You know, Superman basically is Zeus. Batman is Hades. Flash is Hermes. Aquaman's Poseidon. He carries a literal trident. Wonder Woman is an actual Amazonian warrior, kind of like channeling Hera as well. You've got Green Arrow, who is Apollo. You've got Green Lantern, who is Hephaestus. I mean, you can you can tease this stuff out and keep going all day long. But I think, like you said, they're very intentional on Snyder's part. I think the big takeaway for me anyway, and I want to ask you about this, is how he portrayed Superman in this particular film. Because it seems like you said, you know, talking about archetypes or types of Christ, it seems that it's like they're waiting for the Messiah. In Superman, there's, you know, redemption, there's resurrection, there's all these different parallels i feel like to christ is that what he was trying to do or am i reading into that i don't think you're reading into it at all i think it's on the nose for a reason and no one has ever accused Zack snyder of being subtle from the very beginning even back in man of steel he seems to position superman at the very center of his vision for this story and i don't think it's a coincidence at all superman's history in the comic books morph him into a kind of modern messianic figure Snyder essentially takes him in Man of Steel and turns him into a Man of Sorrows. He gives you a Superman who goes through the human experience and has to figure out what makes humanity worth saving, if at all. And he sort of learns that there isn't a ton of good and that if he's going to save these people, it's going to cost him more than it's ever going to cost them. And it does in Batman v Superman. And like you said, in Justice League, these themes of resurrection and they're waiting for this messianic return of Superman. I think it's all very, very, very intentional because I think Snyder understands on some deeper level that 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 really resonates. And that is why I say right now, the critical reception is so divided And fans are so divided over this kind of stuff because we have a framework of a quote-unquote good or popular superhero film. Snyder is not so much interested in making a superhero movie as he is in making a mythological story with superheroes in it, or what we would call superheroes today. So give it some time, I think, and the quality of the storytelling I think is going to undergo some pretty serious reevaluations. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's not coincidence at all that his Superman is basically that version of Jesus. Well, finally, on a much lighter note, I have some fun rapid fire questions for Cole. So Cole, it's summer. What's your favorite summer food? My favorite summer food, probably key lime pie. That's a good one. Very refreshing. And we've been talking about superheroes. So if you could have any superpower, what would that be? (sighs) Flying is kind of cool, but I'd probably say invisibility. That's a good one. And speaking of summer, if you could take a vacation anywhere and money was no object, where would you go? Oh, that's a terrible question. Why would you do that to me? And this is supposed to be rapid fire. Um, You know, I've been to a lot of places and I've traveled quite a bit, but uh, I've never been to the, I guess what we'd call the Far East. I've never been to Japan or China. And that's sort of next on my bucket list. So it would be somewhere over there. If money was not an option, I'd go Far East. And of course, with COVID, a lot of movie theaters closed, so we were streaming. But now that things are opening back, streaming movies or movies in the theater? Oh, movies in the theater. 
it's a borderline religious experience for me. <laughs> so I'll be back in theaters. I for sure. I'm such a big Star Wars fan that even if the film itself, whatever iteration it is, is lame. When you hear that music come on, it oh, just yeah. feels like a religious experience. It does in the theater. Well, thanks, Cole, for being a guest again on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. I always enjoy it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to episode 239 of the Postmodern Realities Podcast, brought to you by the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest was Cole Burgett, and he has written an online exclusive film review called Know Us Without Him, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Zack Snyder's Justice League. And as one of their benefits, our subscribers can read this article for free at our website, equip.org. We'd like to connect to you, so please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man YouTube channel and join in the conversation in the comments section and in the live chat when we have premiere videos. Please follow the Bible Answer Man page on Facebook and on Twitter. You will find us at Hank Hanegraaff, Bible Answer Man, Christian Research Institute, and Christian Research Journal, as well as on Instagram at the Bible Answer Man account. You won't want to miss every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern when we live stream the Bible Answer Man broadcast, hosted by CRI President Hank Canegraaff at our website, equip.org. In addition, please subscribe to the Hank Unplugged podcast. Hank gets out of the studio and into his study and engages in in-depth, free-flowing, essential Christian conversations on critical issues with some of the most interesting, informative, and inspirational people on the planet. You'll want to head on over to Equip.org because there you're going to find thousands of free resources for you in articles and past broadcasts, our podcasts, and videos. And thank you for all the ways in which you partner with the Christian Research Institute. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.